So, so Father, thank you. We'll need help with that because we're British and we're so uh, bound sometimes by our walls of silence. Help us, Lord, to see one another as family, to understand that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have been put here today for the purpose of encouraging one another, building each other up, that we are about the praise of the Lord Jesus, and that's what we want to do, praise him, Lord. But we're mindful also of the fact that he wants us to build up this body of Christ. He wants us to be active in sharing our faith, one with the other, sharing our difficulties, um, sharing our vulnerabilities because you in your amazing way Lord you use all of that and you and you build up for yourself a whole body of believers ready to go out and face the world for another day so I do pray Lord that you would help us with that I pray that as we uh, go through now some more scriptures, that you would give us understanding Lord that your Holy Spirit would take over that you would uh, reach into the deepest parts of our hearts, that, that word of God, that the, the uh, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that that sword would really pierce our hearts, Lord, and show us the truth about who you are and about how, who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. And sorry, just one more thing. Father, I pray for the twins who left, for uh, Judith and Caroline. Lord, that, uh, I, I, I don't know which one has the headache, but I pray, Judith, that you would give her relief from that headache, uh, a migraine headache, Lord, which we know can be so debilitating. And so I pray that as even now, as they're on their way home, that she would be resting and relaxing and recovering, Lord, and that she would just turn to the scriptures that we would be looking at today together and that she will find that she's hearing you speak to her, um, as, as we all do, Lord, as we open up your word. So we thank you, Lord, and put them in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, so, behold your God. That's how the writer to the Hebrews um, starts. This is Jesus. This is who he is. Uh, take a look at him. Consider Jesus. And he's going to go on um, at the end of chapter 1. He's going to start to talk about what we have to do because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And uh, he's very clear, actually, um, in chapter 2, verse 1, For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. What must we do because we have heard about Jesus? We must pay close attention. We must pay close attention to what we have heard. And what we have heard has come to us through the pages of the Bible. We have heard, when you came to Christ, you heard the word of God. You heard the gospel. Peter will say in chapter 1 that we are born again through the living and enduring word of God. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 23. You were born again by the word of God. Paul will talk about it in Romans that... Uh, 
that it is faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You heard the gospel message and you, and you were saved. And so uh, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, pay close attention. And the reason that we must pay close attention is because we so easily drift away. We so easily drift away. And we are so prone to being deceived. Um, Let's carry on in Hebrews 2, verse 5. For he did not subject the angels, sorry, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father." for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of your congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. It's a long passage which began with pay close attention. Be careful to pay close attention and do not ignore the message of this great salvation, which the writer says uh, was heard... Um, was announced by the Lord himself and confirmed by the Spirit, the Spirit's uh, given uh, signs and wonders that were happened. And you can see when you read this right at the beginning that um, he says, um, uh, verse 3, after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So you know now that these people that the, the writer's writing to are not the apostles and those first believers because they didn't hear directly from the Lord. They heard from people who heard from Jesus. So they heard the message of their salvation through the apostles and those first believers. Um, so 
Like us, they didn't hear this message directly from Jesus himself, but the message itself was confirmed to them by signs and wonders and by various miracles. And all the talk of angels, which is a bit confusing for us, because it's like, why is, why is this whole chapter about, you know, talking about angels? It wasn't confusing for the Jewish believers because their religion had a lot to do, has a lot to do with angels because God used angels to take a message to people. Do you remember when, uh, just before the destruction of Sodom, um, God, it, it, he comes to Abraham and it says three men came to Abraham two angels and, and God himself. So the Jews are used to this concept of the angel of the Lord. And so they've been putting angels up on a pedestal. And what the writer is doing is saying, you're getting this all wrong. You're getting this all upside down. That, you know, it's not angels who need to be worshipped. And, and also, he, think about what he's saying here. He's saying, when Christ came and did what he did, he raised us up, the people who believe in him. So look at, look at again, at um, uh, verse 5 to verse 13. What is it? What is the great salvation that he mentions here? Somebody read out verse 5 to verse um, 8, please. Just shout it out. Thank you. Who's he talking about? <coughs> no, who's he talking about? It's interesting, Caroline, but who's he talking about? He's talking about mankind. He's talking about mankind. And, and you know, I mean, I got this wrong for a long time. There's no shame in it. It, sounds, it sounded to me like he was talking about Jesus, but he's not. He's talking about what Christ did. And he starts with, for, for he did not subject to angels the world to come. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. But then look at what he says. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. What has happened to man so that all things are not subjected to him? At what time were all things subjected to man? In the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. That God made man in his own image and he gave them dominion over all the earth. Read uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Um, God created man in his own image. That ma the word for man there is human, Adam, mankind. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Mankind was given dominion 
over the earth. What happened? The fall happened. What's the fall? Yes, sin entered in. How? Disobedience. How? What was the disobedience? Yeah, (laughs) they didn't do the one thing they were asked not to do, they did. What do we call that in our language? Disobedience, rebellion, sin. That's what it is. They didn't do what God had asked them not to, or they did do what God had asked them not to do. Just one thing. Read the account in Genesis 2 and 3. Read the account. There was just one thing they were not supposed to do, and they couldn't resist and did it. Um, They sinned. They believed the lie of the enemy. And because of that, what happened? They were cast out of the Garden of Eden, which meant separated from God, which meant, yeah, they died, they died spiritually, which meant they lost dominion and they lost glory. They lost glory. They, they lost what they were given in the beginning. So think about what he's saying now. Sorry, Alan, go ahead. Say that again. Yes, exactly. They were put out of work as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so think about this great salvation. Um, how, will we neg- how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What is it that God has done in Jesus now to rectify what happened in the fall? I know that you know, you know, you're going to say he saved us. Yes, that's true. I want to go more. Think about these verses. What has happened in the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Yes, yes. Which was what? Glory, dominion. So what has Jesus actually done? He's made possible the exaltation of humankind, of mankind. He's made possible... The, the us going back to be what we were always supposed to be in the beginning. And how did he do it? Yeah, according to these verses, how did he do it? Yes, by paying the price. But we do see him, verse 9, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What happened when Jesus died? He tasted death for everyone. And in his death and in his resurrection, he provided for the return of humankind to the place of honor, actually, that they had in the beginning. Why would it have been a place of honor and glory? Yes, but think about verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. Exactly, made in the image of God. If you're made in the image of God, what's God? He is glorious. You are made in the image of God. Mankind was made in the image of God, and they fell. They fell. And not only did they go into the death that we know from other scriptures that that we live in, but they lost this glory that they had with God in the beginning. And Jesus' death on our behalf enables us to be raised up with him. But now think, what does that mean? 
What does it mean that you are now spiritually raised up with Christ back, if you like, back into the spiritual aspect of the Garden of Eden, just as a picture? What does that mean? Who's under your feet? Satan is under your feet. Who are you over? Spiritually, who are you over? Yeah, you're over everything but God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse... um, uh, chapter 2, verse, let's see where we'll start. Yeah, let's, verse, um, well, we'll go back a bit to chapter 1, which he brought about in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. But now go down to verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where? In Christ Jesus. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, which means you are far above all rule and authority and every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. And, and, and the writer to the Hebrews will take that. He'll say, you have been exalted to the position you should have had in the beginning, were it not for rebellion and sin. And he will say that not only is that a reinstatement to the exaltation you had, it is also the escape to freedom. It is the escape to freedom. You have been chained for All of the years since creation began, you have been chained by your sin. You have been chained to Satan, if you like, or at least to his kingdom. And you were unable to free yourself from him. But now in Christ Jesus, you have been freed from him. And look at how he puts it. Therefore, verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those, free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he help, gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What have you been set free from? You have been set free from fear. From fear. Jesus will say in in the Gospels that he came to save his people from their sins. You have been set free from your sins, but you have also been set free from fear. That song we sang, you know, I had the hardest time with it in the beginning. Really, not today, I mean, but when I first heard it. I loved the song. I love the song, but I just, you know, is that really scriptural, Lord? I just can't. Is that really scriptural? Freedom from fear? No longer a slave to fear? I thought, how can that be scriptural? We're no longer slaves to sin. 
So I was up on my mighty high horse, and it was so good up there. You know. And then, and then, you open up the word, and what does it do? It shows you, I have been set free from fear. I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And all of that high and mighty pride was just trampled by the word of God that cuts through bone and marrow and soul and spirit and shows you what's there and what's going to trip you up and what's going to keep you bound even though you don't know it. It's going to hold you back and get in the way. And every one of us is susceptible to that. Every one of us. What are we, we have escaped from freedom. Freedom of death. Freedom of etern- from fear of eternity. Freedom from fear of Satan. And freedom of fear even from God himself. There are people afraid of God. They are afraid of God. And so all of the t- time that you talk to them about God and about the gospel and about how you have joy and peace, they are afraid because Satan has made them afraid of God. And he has in that way kept them bound by fear of death. Why would fear of death be connected with their fear of God? Yeah. Because one day every human being will stand before God. And Satan uses that to connect that in people with fear. So some of the people you talk to about the gospel, some of the people you talk to about Jesus, and they, they come back really angry, and they're just, I don't want to know that, that's a load of old rubbish. That comes out of a deep-seated fear. Not of Satan, because they're not even sure he exists. They're afraid of God, because they know that one day something in them God says in Romans chapter 1 that he made himself evident within people. He made himself evident in creation and he made himself evident within every person. Every person, whether they actually consciously realize it or not, they are aware of the reality of God and they are afraid. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There's two. Yeah, I think that there are two sorts of fear, Alan. Yeah. I think that the. Um, but what? And we're going to talk about a little bit about that this afternoon about Satan and how he holds us bound and how this being set free from fear is not just the fear of death. It's the fear of everything associated with death, everything associated with that. Even, even whether or not we believe it, we have been set free from the fear of dying, the way we die and how we die. And even though that's a hard thing to contemplate, I think what the writer to the Hebrews shows us is that Jesus has dealt with even the fear of dying. Because most of us here would say, I'm not afraid to die. I'm going to go and be with the Lord. But many of us would say, I'm just, I just don't want to die badly and in pain. 
or I don't want to get dementia, or I don't want to get this, or I don't want to get that. And the writer to the Hebrews amazingly knows this, and he shows us how Jesus' death on the cross, on the cross, how his death not only released us from the fear of death, but from the fear of dying. It's an amazing thing, really. It's just amazing. But let's, um, let's go back to Ephesians, can we? Because I just want us to fully grasp what is true about us now. Uh, it's a kind of foundational section of Scripture, actually, for those of us who are believers. Look at what he says. In Hebrews, he told us that those who have believed in Jesus have been lifted up to share in Jesus' glory, becoming so so fully of him that we're his family, brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God. And in Ephesians, look at what um, Paul tells us, verse 18 of chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. If you never pray another prayer for yourself, pray that one. Pray that prayer that you would know the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Memorize that passage of scripture. Write it on your bedroom wall, write it on the kitchen fridge, on the fridge door, write it down somewhere and tell that to yourself every day. I was dead, but now I live. I'm in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 18 to chapter 2, verse 10. And even if you know it well, I know it well, and I can actually, I know some of these verses off by heart, not the whole passage, but um, a lot of them. But I want to remind myself of these things every day because these things are important. 
they are important because they tell us who we are in Christ and they tell us what Christ has done and they give us the energy and the impetus to go out when humanly speaking we don't have the energy. They give us the energy and the power to go out because we understand this surpassing greatness of power that is at work towards us. Do you know that even as you sit here, there is a surpassing great power at work towards you? It is the power that raised Christ from the dead. Look at what he says, the power towards us who believe. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Then this surpassing great power is at work towards you and will never stop being at work towards you. It will enable you to to live. It will enable you to withstand. It will enable you to persevere. And it will enable you, though you walk far away from God sometimes, it will enable you to come back. This surpassing great power. Amen, amen. Um, and, And if we could just grasp it and hold on to it. That's why I'm saying write it down. Yes, there'll be temptations always to... Drawing, trying to draw us back into the way of death. Of course, Satan is about our destruction. He, he doesn't know that he cannot destroy the true believer in Jesus Christ. And so he keeps trying and trying and trying. And when he can't destroy you, he will seek to destroy your joy and your peace. And that is a battle you have to fight. We did a day... A, few years ago, fighting for joy. You have to fight for joy. It doesn't come naturally to you. It won't just land on you. You have to fight to lay hold of that joy. You have to fight to lay hold of the peace, to hold on to it, because you are going to be distracted and uh, pulled away every which way, because when you have no joy and when you have no peace, you are unable to witness correctly for the Lord Jesus. Because all you can think about is just you're consumed by your own circumstances. You're consumed by your own doubts and your own sin, maybe, and your own rebellion. You get so consumed by it that you forget where you exist in Christ Jesus, what God has done for you. And the nitty-gritty details of your day just overwhelm you. And you can almost, it's almost impossible to lift your head. Your relationship with your husband, your relationship with your children, your relationship with your neighbor, your, your job, your whatever it is, your health. It just wants to overwhelm you. The Bible talks about Satan coming in like a flood. He comes in like a flood sometimes. And you just think, I'm not going to be able to get my next breath. That's why you need to memorize these scriptures. That's why we need to know who God is and who Jesus is and where I am in him and that I will not die because Christ died for me. I will live forever. This exaltation that Christ brought about in his death has raised us up far beyond anything. I can't imagine it. Can you? Can you imagine it? We're seated in heavenly places in Christ. I can't get my head around that. It's too big. And then I read that verse in in, um, Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you ask can ask or think. And I think, yes, I can't even imagine this. 
even, even if I try to imagine it, I can't imagine it. It's too big and it's too glorious. And because of that, Satan comes into my mind like this little insidious serpent that he is with the arrow that he, he shoots at me and he says, can it really be true, Anne? Can it really be true then? Because I can't imagine it. I can't think big enough for it. And so the doubt comes then, really, have I made this up? Am I, am I getting this right? There you go. Definitely, it's the sword of the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you use it. And Yes, and that sword in Ephesians 6, if you ever do a study on that, that sword is a, sword is a dagger. It's not a long sword. It's not like a fencing sword, you know, where the, the opponent's over there somewhere, and it's all very nice and graceful. This is an up-close and personal struggle. This is a dagger about that long. This is for you to fight Satan where you are with the words that God gives you. Right close. You say, I'm this, but I know I'm this. You come back with this word of God. And he's going to go on here to say that it's our faithful and merciful high priest who has done this for us. It is Jesus who has done this. While he was here on earth, it says he was made like his brethren in that he experienced all the weakness of human nature. And Jesus knew more about weakness than you do. How come? Because you'd think, well, he, he was God. I mean, he was pretty strong, right? He didn't give in to, to temptation, so he must be strong, much stronger than me. But when he took on flesh, he was weaker than you are. How come? Because he never gave in. He knew the extent of human weakness. You and I, we give in all the time. We don't know how weak we are because we give in. But he never gave in. He took every ounce of temptation and he was tempted to beyond the limits you could ever be tempted and he still did not give in. He knew what it was like to have to withstand day after day after day after day after day interminably to withstand temptation. And maybe even worse, he knew at any moment he could put a stop to it. Yet he did not. When you think about Jesus being weak, understand that he was weaker. He willingly took on a weakness far weaker than yours. I mean, you're weak because you don't withstand. You give in. All of us give in. Given enough pressure, we give in, humanly speaking. But he didn't. He knows about weakness. He knows what it's like to be a baby. He knows about hunger. He knows about thirst. He knows what it was like to be a teenager. He knows all the temptation, sexual temptation of teenagers. Can you even imagine that? He knows what that's like and yet was pure. In thought as well as deed. 
It's one thing, isn't it, to say, you know, to sign the pledge for Jesus and I'm not having sex outside of marriage and I'm going to wait and I'm going to be pure. That's one thing. But to sign your mind over as well and say I'm not going to even think about it, I'm, that thought's going to come and I'm immediately getting rid of it. I'm not even going to spend a moment. I'm not going to look at another human being, another, in my case, another man, a boy. I'm never going to look at a person that way and feel any any temptation to sin, I am always going to withstand that. I'm not going to allow my mind to, to, to fester there for a little bit. That's what he did. Every single temptation, to the nth degree, he withstood. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be despised. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows the temptation to bitterness. He knows all of those things, and yet he did not sin. He was more despised than you ever will be. He was more rejected than you will ever be. He was lonelier than you will ever be. He was lied about. He was falsely accused and he never, ever gave in to the temptation to go outside of the will of his father. Hmm? He what? He did, yeah. But he had to choose to stay in his will and not his own. And his humanness, Carol screamed at him to choose his own will. Okay, take it from us. I mean, you know the Lord Jesus. You know you've been saved from uh, eternal death. You know all that he's done for you. How much do you withstand? How many times do you want to run? How many times do you run? It was not easier for Jesus because he was God. It was harder. It was harder. And all of it was training for his ministry as high priest. I mean, it, and, and do you know what? He didn't need to be trained. He was God. He didn't need to go through any of it, not any of it. I can't even get that in my head. Talk about trying to imagine the greatness of where I am in Christ. To try to imagine that he would do that to be trained in righteousness, humanly speaking. That there was an obedience that he had to go through. Because I wouldn't. And because you wouldn't. Because you would not bow your knee. He had to be trained in that obedience. It takes my breath away. He is merciful and faithful. Can you imagine how faithful Christ is that he would do that? And that he would never walk away from it? And we talk about, you know, faith and how our faith is going to see us through to heaven and how our faith is going to do this and is going to do that. Well, your faith won't get you out of the door your faith won't get you to heaven. It will not get you to heaven. It's only Christ's faithfulness 
that will get you to heaven. You can put your trust in Jesus as well as you can for as long as you can, but if he's not faithful to his word, you're done for. You're dead. It's because he is faithful that you will go to heaven. It's because he is faithful that you can know joy and peace. It is because he came and was willing to do all that he did to prove himself the faithful and merciful high priest that you and I can know that we know that we know that it's not dependent on me. Thank God it's not dependent on me. It's dependent on him. He made the necessary sacrifice, the required sacrifice. That's what propitiation means. It is the necessary, satisfactory sacrifice. Why? So that we might be reconciled to God. Not so that he could be reconciled to God, but that we might be reconciled to God. And now, when we're tempted to sin, what's he doing? He's interceding. He comes to the aid. Look at what it says in verse 18. For since he himself uh, was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He was tempted when he was on earth, but no temptation conquered him. And because he has defeated every enemy, he is able to give us the grace that we need to overcome temptation. In fact, because we're in him, we are now credited already with his victory. And the phrase in in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted, actually literally means he runs to the cry of a child. He runs to the cry of a child. Only Jesus can do that. And he can do it only because he became a man, suffered and died. John first John chapter two verse one says that calls Jesus our advocate. What's the difference between Jesus' ministry as a high priest and his ministry as an advocate? What does he do according to Hebrews chapter two as our high priest? Anybody out there? He comes to our aid. He gives us the grace that we need when we're tempted. And he comes to our aid to stop us from sinning, to keep us from sinning. He gives us the grace we need to stop, to not sin. What does he do as our advocate? What's an advocate? Defends. So when you have sinned, He speaks for you. Do you see what I mean? Honestly, I don't want to move out of these these words. He's the high priest. He made himself the sacrifice, and he was the priest that offered the sacrifice. And now he's our advocate. So those of us who have come in through his high priesthood, who have believed in the Lord Jesus, who have received salvation, now whenever we cry to him when we're tempted, he will provide the grace we need not to sin. But when we do sin, he's still there. And now he's our advocate and he's speaking for us. He's speaking for us. Representing us before the throne of God who forgives us when we 
truly repent and confess our sins. First John chapter 1, verse 9. Um, and if we confess our sins, he is, I agree with God that that's a sin. He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Both of those ministries are involved in his work of intercession. And it's the intercessory ministry of Christ that gives us the guarantee, look at Hebrews chapter 7, of our eternal salvation. Hebrews 7 verse 25. Therefore, oh, let's go back, uh, verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he is always, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Yeah, forever. We who are dead, were dead are now alive. We can hear and respond to the voice of God calling us to glory. It's the most amazing thing. I want to just, it seemed like a bit of a digression, but it's not actually. I talked a little bit a while ago about being set free from the fear of death. And, um, and Billy Graham, I don't know if you ever heard Billy Graham. Did you listen to him? Most people have probably listened to him. I went to one of his crusades long time ago. Um, <laughs> I can't remember much about it. But he, he often, well, he always uses John 3.16. Um, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He who has the son has life, he'll say, John will say later in, um, in 1 John. He who has the son has life, he, or has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. And Billy Graham would use... Um, John chapter 3, verse 16, to, to give the gospel. Because once he'd said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, suddenly the opening was there for him to tell people about um, the fact that every one of them would be dead within 70 years, more or less. So I, if, John the, if um, John the Baptist, well, if he were here, but also if Billy Graham were here, he would look around this room and he would say, all of us will be dead within 70 years. I'm being kind. Within 70 years, we'll all be dead. And what Billy Graham did with that, with that was he made clear afterwards that he said, and every one of us will be cognitive in either heaven or in hell. It's, it's that we'll die physically, but we will be spiritually alive in heaven or in hell. Your soul, your spirit, will continue through heaven and through hell. And I think I said, um, we talked about the fear of death a little while ago, or I said about the fear of death in these verses. Think about it. If there's no God, then death is sad, but not terrifying. It's sad because everything we love and is caught up in this life and when we die it's going to be sad because we're not going to have those things anymore. But if there's a God, death is not just sad, it's terrifying because we will have to face that God and make an account of our life. And if the God that the Bible tells us about is 
really the God if he is just and holy and righteous and true and if he does love and if he did offer his son to take us to be with him then we can know that when we face him we're going to have a lot of accounting to do if we have refused his son so what do you think Satan does with that truth that there is definitely a God I mean I mentioned it earlier what does he do Not for you, because you've made your choice, but generally for humanity. What is Satan's big work? You can see it so clearly in in our culture. Hmm? Fear, fear, yeah, and how does he do that, though? I mean, what ways does he do that? Lies, yeah, lies. So what sort of lies? Deception, yeah. So what's the deception? I mean, what, what if you were Satan and you wanted people not to think about God, what would you do? Yeah, no. If you don't want them to think about God, what would you do? Yeah, you would distract them. You would distract them so that they had no time to think about God. Think about our culture. How much distraction is there in our culture? How much time is there to think about God? Okay, so that's one way. You would distract them. In all sorts of different ways, you would distract them. What's another way you might do it? Hmm? Yeah, exactly, exactly. He would deceive into telling you that there is so much freedom here. You can do what you like and it's all good. So all of the ways that he does that, give me some ways. Alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, success, yeah, success, sport, all of those ways. This is freedom. You can be who you want to be. You can live your own life. I grew up in that era. I grew up in that. You can be whoever you want to be. You can live this life whichever way you want to live. This world is all about you. It's your oyster. I grew up like that. And I suspect that some people did too here. But that's a lie. Isn't it? It's a lie. Focus. Focus. Come back. It's a lie. Because drugs will kill you. Alcohol will kill you. Or at the very least, it will make you completely useless for anything. He'll, he'll tell you lies about this life, that it can be everything you want it to be. And you will believe it because you want it to be everything you want it to be. He'll tell you that another person can make you totally and utterly happy. And you want to believe it, of course. But it's a lie. No one person can make you totally and utterly happy. It's not possible. It'll tell you that, you know, if you, if you get a good education and you get a good job and you go higher and higher and you get higher and higher until in the end you've got your own company and all, everybody's working for you and you'll be satisfied. And when you get there, it's a lie. It's a lie. A distraction. And what will happen then with all these different ways of distraction? I mean, even philosophical debate, he will fill you with such academic intelligence that you will be able to debate with everybody the reality of God or not and all of this. You'll be like Sigmund Freud and all of those. You'll be able to hold a whole room with your philosophical debate and that'll be wonderful. But you'll go home empty 
because none of it will satisfy. But the thing is, the most insidious thing that he does, and I was thinking about it the other day, you know how you have cruise control on a car? You know what cruise control is designed to do? It's to keep you at the right speed, right? You know that. You should know that. Come on. So you've set the cruise control on the, on the car of your life, your life, right? You're sitting. And, and he's set cruise control at 55 miles an hour. And very occasionally, you'll want to slow down and think about your life and assess things. And, you know, I, I want my life to be, you know, I want to know what I'm doing and where I'm going. And Satan does not want you to do that. So he will immediately speed up your life to reach the 55 again so that you don't have time to think about and assess where your life is. And then there'll be times when you want to go faster and you'll go faster and it will start to be exciting because you'll be looking into the reality of God and, it'll be, and you'll meet Le- uh, Trelane and she'll talk to you about God and how her life has changed. And yeah, sorry, here she is over there. Yeah, And you'll talk to her and you'll be thinking, wow, my heart's racing, the adrenaline's pumping. I want to know this God like she knows God. And what will Satan do? He will put the brakes on your car and slow you right down into that middle ground of apathy and lethargy where you can take your hands off the steering wheel even and your foot off the accelerator pedal and the car will drive itself and he will take you straight to hell. That's what he does all the time to people to stop them thinking about the reality of God. And that's how, consciously or subconsciously, he holds them in slavery to fear of death. Because the odd moments that they think about God will fill them with fear. And then think about um, the fact that if you're enslaved by fear... how that starts to grow and entwine itself in every other aspect of your life. We live in a, a world of anxiety and fear. Every other person is anxious or fearful. Even believers, unfortunately. We are racked with fear and anxiety. Everything starts to toss us about. I know lots of people who have panic attacks because of the fear. Even though they're Christians, they have panic attacks. And they really seriously, I've never had a panic attack, thank God. But I know people who have, and they say, you think you're going to die. That's what Satan does. He comes in with the thing that, you want to be, that you've got to be anxious about. And he lets it fester in there. And he tells you, you better find a way to sort that out. Because, I mean, only you can sort that out. Only you can be the one who figures that. And he makes you go over it and over it and over it. And in the dead of night, when you wake up in the middle of the night, and this panic attack grabs you and wrecks, wrecks, racks your body, that's fear. And it's the deception And look at what the writer to the Hebrews says. 
Look at what Christ did. Therefore, sorry, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless um, him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Then look at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, um, compare the, um, the, those two things. How does the death of Christ defeat the power of Satan in death? It's a simple question. Just look at those verses. How does um, the... Uh, sorry. <laughs> Wait a minute. What did I just ask you? There you go. Thank you. Oh, yes. How does the, Sorry, I'm trying to find the question on my page. How does the death of Christ defeat the power of Satan in death? He's tasted death for everyone. But what has he actually done here, according to these verses? Yes. Yeah, he made propitiation for us. How did he do that? In his death. So there are five steps to your freedom in these verses. Just five little steps. One, you're a human being. Everybody attests to that. Therefore, Christ became human, number two. So that he might die in your place, number three. To nullify the power of the devil. Hey, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Number one, you are a human being. You know that? that? Since the children share in flesh and blood, verse 14. So you are a human being. Number two, therefore Christ became human. He himself also partook of the same. So that he might die for you, number three. Um, so that he might become, uh, sorry, uh, render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, to nullify the deadly power of the devil, i.e. to do away with it. And what is the result? That he might free you from slavery to fear so that you can live in freedom. Now, the question is, how does the death of Christ defeat the power of the devil? You've already answered it. You know the words. just a nice, long Christian word. Propitiation. He makes propitiation. Okay. Um, Christ became like us so that he could die in our place and render powerless the one who had the power of death. Sorry, it's a bit turgid because I'm losing my place in my notes, but I want us to understand this. So he became like us so that he would, could become a high priest. The conclusion then is in, in that is Christ rendered the devil powerless by his high priestly work. Now, the reason that I want to get to that place, is when did Christ stop being our high priest? He hasn't stopped. So Satan, no matter how many times he rears his ugly head, cannot stop us from being free. 
cannot take us back because Christ is forever, Julie pointed it out, forever our high priest. He is forever the once and for all propitiation. So there is no way that Satan can drag you back into fear except... Hmm? If you allow him. And how do you allow him? By believing the lie. By believing the lie. By believing that you are not free. That's the thing. When you were not free, you were deceived constantly. Held in chains by the by Satan. But once you were set free, that was gone. And now you can never be put back into chains by Satan. So his work was to make, as high priest, was to make propitiation for the sins of the people and render powerless the work of the devil. So if his propitiation was a once-for-all sacrifice and if he is still the high priest and that will never end... Propitiation means that Christ has taken God's punishment of us, his anger at us, and he is satisfied. So therefore, that will never change. He is forever the high priest, forever the sacrifice. Now, I know that I've I've very laboriously gone over that. But you see, the thing is, that's the gospel. That's your salvation. Christ Jesus, our high priest, forever our high priest, has once for all paid the price so that you and I are forever free. With him. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yes, exactly. No, they can't go there. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, we can't go down there, Diana. Yeah, he is, exactly. But I, want to think, I really want to take this one more step. Um, does it mean, because he's rendered the devil powerless, that you and I won't die? No, because we will. Believers die physically. Does it mean that you won't die painfully? No, because there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of difficulty. Does it mean that he can't actually literally kill you physically? No. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 says that Satan will destroy you, know, destroy you kill you. It's possible. Physical death is not anything to do with salvation. Satan is sometimes successful in killing people physically. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why God would allow it. But all I do know is, physically, we will die, all of us, one day. And I know that God will cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
when we think about all these things, what is the only thing then that Satan can use to destroy us in our death? People. What is the only thing that he can use to destroy people in their death? If Christ made propitiation for all the sins of the whole world, and anyone who believes that is now saved and is saved forever, what is the only thing that Satan can do to mess up um, that, that thing? He can stop you believing. He can stop. I mean, he, he can't phys- actually literally stop you, but he can do everything he can to stop you believing. And the way he does that is coming back to what we said in the beginning is deception. Smokescreen, distraction, deception inside and outside of the church. Both places. Think about it. He can't send you to hell, Satan. You're a believer. He cannot. He cannot touch you spiritually. He cannot touch you. Your soul is now being transformed into the image of Christ. Your spirit is alive forevermore, never to die again. But he can mess up your mind by having you believe lies. What's the problem with that? Hmm? It disables you. It disables you. And so forget the fact that you're not witnessing for Christ. When you're disabled in that way, what else is happening? Hmm? No joy, no peace. Just no testimony. Can't even believe for yourself. So in a picture form, what you do is you pick up the chains and you wrap them around your own ankles and you walk like this through your life. The chains that Christ broke, the fear of death, the fear of Satan, the fear of everything, you just literally pick up and in some way you attach them to yourself. You put them in your backpack, you carry them around your neck, you try to tie them around your legs. In some way, you just keep on with those same chains. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you say infect? Yes, it can. It can. It is a fail-safe way for Satan to incapacitate the church. He is doing it all the time. And you don't think of that. When you're thinking about something you're afraid of, you don't think of that. You don't think that that has an impact on the whole church, but it does. It does. What does it, Paul, say about the body of Christ? It's a body, and every part is important. And if the little toe hurts, the whole body hurts. If you're afraid, your fear infects me in some way. We stand together or we fall together. That's the picture. We are to fight for each other, fight for our own joy and our own, and our own peace, and fight for our, our brothers and sisters. You need to fight for me. You need to fight for me. Pray for me. Hard, strong prayers that I will hold on to my 
the truth of the scriptures. And I need to fight for you. And you need to text me. And I need to text you. And we need to be fighting together. We need to be meeting together. We need to make that a priority. Your sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can change that. Nothing. But if you want to live in the joy of it, and if you want to be effective for Christ, you have to say no to fear. You have to take the truth of God and plant it in your head. You have to read the word until you can't read the word for another time. You have to go over and over and over the truth. Exodus 40, what is it he says? Uh, Do not be afraid. Do not anxiously look about you. For I am your God. I am with you. I will strengthen you. Do not anxiously look about you. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not fear is the most repeated command in scripture. Are you a child of God? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And when you are tempted to be afraid, Christ will come when you call. When you're tempted to fear, cry out to Jesus and he'll send someone to help you not to be afraid. And if you think you're not afraid and that you've gone past that, then okay, that's fantastic. But ask the Lord to search your heart with his living and active word of God to pierce through soul and spirit, bone and marrow, to show you the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. Because I know that you will find in there a deception. You will find something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to break for lunch. While you're uh, having lunch, I'm sorry, a bit late, um, so we'll come back at... You haven't got so long for lunch as you thought you might have. We'll come back about ten past two. Um, I think about... Because this afternoon we're going to talk a lot after we've worshipped and prayed together and... We're going to talk a lot about um, how we can fight the things and the lies that we typically believe about ourselves. Um, but I want you to think, when you're sitting with, sitting with friends over lunch, how do you tend to think that God feels about you? What is your general tendency? When you think about yourself and the Lord, what is your usual feeling How does God think about you? And I think that's good to share with one another because you'll find yourself saying things well and realizing that what you really do think. And then um, spend a bit of time praying for one another. It doesn't have to be loads. You've got to eat a sandwich. I know you're hungry. But, you know, just think a little bit. How do I feel? How do I think that God thinks about me? And if it's a good thing, and if you've said it and you think, wow, that's, yeah, then you can encourage the person you're with because maybe they don't think that. 
And then you can pray together and build each other up. And all of that in 45 minutes. Amazing. So, Father, I want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for for your word. Thank you for the way that you minister it to us. Help us now as we sit together at lunch to uh, really help each other, Lord, to um, not just eat and chatter about this and that, but to really talk about who you are and um, what Jesus has done to set us free. And uh, help us, Lord, help us use that living word to penetrate, Father, because we want rid of anything that is not true. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you'll do it. In Jesus' name, amen.